So uh, this summer, I've been dipping in and out of a book, um, dipping in and out because it's quite a heavy read. It's the sort of thing actually, um, sad but true, I quite like a heavy read. Um, so, but I can't do it all in one go. But this book is called The Tyranny of Merit by a, um, a political philosopher called Michael Sandel. And Sandel, I'd recommend, if you like a deep read, it's a really, really good book, I have to say. But Sandel brilliantly draws out some of the flawed cultural messages that we have, that we believe about success and failure. And this has been one of several strands going on in my mind over the summer, which I like to call my summer musings. So this morning, don't worry, we're not gonna go too deep and not too heavy, like Michael Sandel does, but I hope that I'm gonna be able to draw out some of the really interesting and important things that he says and contrast them, well not contrast them, but augment them with what the Bible says. And I want to build, too, on Tom's brilliant talk last week, which if you weren't here and you were on holiday, I'd encourage you to go to the website and pick it up. Um, Tom used the brilliant summary of what it means to practice the way of Jesus. You know, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did which is the challenge to all of us in our discipleship, in our walk with Jesus. And Tom drew on a passage in Matthew 5 called the Beatitudes, which brilliantly describes how to practice the way of Jesus. And Tom made the point that practicing the way of Jesus is profoundly countercultural. It's not just a nice way to live. I mean, it is a good way to live. It's a life-giving way to live. But it says things, the way of Jesus says things to our culture which are really difficult for our culture to get its head around. And in that way, we as Christians are called to be distinctive, not just for some sense because we want to be a bit stubborn and rebellious and live differently just for the sake of living differently. But the message of Jesus says radical things to us. And it is difficult sometimes, I think, as Christians to get our head round how we're called to live distinctively because for most of us, we want to be loved and we want to fit in. But walking the way of Jesus challenges that. That his love enables us to live distinctly. So building a bit on Tom's talk, today I want to look at the subject of grace and the incredible, abundant gift that grace is to us. Now we're gonna do things a little bit differently in that we're gonna do the reading in the middle of my talk. So it will take us a while to get to the reading, but don't worry, that doesn't mean I'm gonna spend all morning <laughs> talking. Uh, we just, it will make sense when we get there. But first, I want to just define quickly and briefly what biblical grace is. There are two parts to it. Biblical grace is the idea that we have done absolutely nothing to deserve the love, the favor, the blessing of God. Nothing. Nothing to deserve it. 
It means that our relationship with Jesus is not founded on the premise of us somehow being good enough. It's not founded on the premise that we've made the grade, we've corrected all our faults, we've corrected all our poor behaviors, and now we're acceptable to God, and so we can be followers of Jesus. No. We are followers of Jesus. Our faith in Jesus is not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus has done. So grace is a gift to us from God that we enter into by faith. No ifs, no buts. It's just about faith. We enter into all of God's promises for us by faith alone. So grace is an unmerited gift. But there's a second strand to it, which Paul, who writes a lot of the um, second half of the New Testament, he speaks a lot about this in his letters to the Corinthian church. And he talks about the fact, this second strand, which is about grace being a power that God gives us in order for us to extend it to others. So it's not just something that we receive, it's also something that we're meant to give out. It's a powerful thing for us to extend towards others. So with that as a foundation, and before we turn to the Bible, I want to try and summarize some of what Michael Sandel says in his book, because he identifies brilliantly the cultural mismatch that there is that, that means that actually practicing grace is really, really difficult. We live in a culture of merit. Merit and grace are like oil and water. It's not just that they can't mix, it, they don't mix. So if we live in a culture of merit, but yet we're called to live by grace, we have, to, we have to do some working of things out. Now, what do I mean by merit? Our whole Western culture is built on the idea that we are chosen for positions of success, for power, for influence, by the virtue of our talents, by the virtue of our hard work, by the virtue of our achievements. And we've embraced this idea mainly to reject the alternative cultural notion that has happened throughout history, that you were chosen for positions of success and power and influence because you were born into privilege. So somehow, you know, you were born into the right class or your parents were rich. And of course, we don't want to stay in, in that type of culture either. So a culture of merit was in some senses, um, a kickback to being born into a culture of privilege, because a culture of privilege meant that our society was so unequal that if you weren't born into privilege, you didn't stand a chance. So of course, we don't want to go back to that culture of privilege. We already have enough of the vestiges of that in our culture now. We don't want that. So there's a lot to be said for a merit approach. So for example, we wouldn't want to be treated by a doctor, for example, who had failed their exams. Uh, we wouldn't employ an electrician to do a plumbing job. We want a plumber to do a plumbing job. 
So there's a lot to be said for encouraging people to do what they're good at, for each of us to identify what we're good at, to train ourselves, to hone our gifts, to steward those things that we're good at responsibly and use them to God's glory. But there is a shadow side to this type of thinking about merit and success and failure and achievement that we have to understand. Because it raises really big questions about what happens when people don't achieve? What happens when we don't achieve? What happens when we don't succeed? And it is a when, not an if. You know, we're all going to get to points in our life, if we haven't already, where we feel like we've hit a brick wall on something and despite our best efforts, we haven't quite got where we want to go. So what happens to us? What happens to others who are trapped in cycles of poverty, for example? Now, this way of thinking affects everything, and it starts super young. Just take one, for one example, take our education system, okay? Now, I grew up in East London. I have sort of tried to shrug off any hints of my Cockney accent, but it does come out sometimes when I'm a bit tired. But anyway, I grew up in East London. I went to a, a typical primary school, East London Comprehensive, And although I, on the whole, enjoyed school, my earliest memories are being rewarded with certificates for achievement, for being told I'd done really well when I I read really well, um, for being given medals for sporting achievements, and for for being given two Smarties by my parents if I behaved well. Just two. Now, I do want to say, there are many reasons why why my parents only gave me two Smarties. They're they're not actually stingy people. Sorry, Mum, if you're you're listening to this. No criticism. But somehow, this two Smarty thing really landed with me really deeply that somehow I could only experience pleasure and be rewarded if I achieved. And I don't think I'm probably alone in in that type of thinking. You know, this is hardwired into much of our psyche as a culture from a very, very young age. So this lodged in me so deeply that my spiritual director identified one day. She said, you know what you need to do? You just need to go home and buy yourself a whole tube of Smarties and eat them in one sitting and really enjoy them. So today... They're not all for me. (laughs) We got three trays of Smarties. Oh, (laughs) you know, let's start with them. I mean, this is a random... Oh, sorry. (laughs) Anyway, eat the Smarties and enjoy them, guys. Eat them and enjoy them. (laughs) You haven't done anything to deserve the Smarties. They're there. They're for joy. Okay. So... Lots of things happen in our childhood through the education system, but not just the education system. I think there's a lot that happens in church as well in terms of good behavior being rewarded, bad behavior being frowned on. And anyway, something was left in me as a teenager, young adult, and actually I still try and shrug it off even now, that Christianity is a type of behavior management system. 
Let me tell you, it is not a behavior management system. It really is not. No ifs, no buts, grace is an unmerited gift. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it, and we don't need to work hard to keep it. So this culture of merit that we are born into and that, is, that saturates our culture with its thinking means that we somehow imbibe the message that we are good and accepted if we pass and do well. But here's the problem, and Michael Sandel uh, says it really beautifully. In an unequal society, and let's face it, however much we'd like to think we're not in an unequal society, we absolutely are. Those who land on top want to believe that their success is morally justified. So in a meritocratic society, so in a merit culture that we've been talking about, this means the winners must believe that they have earned their success through their own talent and hard work. And the problem is that's absolutely brilliant if you succeed. But what happens when we don't? It's a hugely, hugely heavy burden to carry. To think that we did all we could, I did all I could, and I still didn't quite make it. And if those who do win are looking at those who don't win with a sense that they've got what they deserve, that's just their lot in life, then it means we're forever destined to live in an unequal society. Now, if you think that this is just a problem outside the church and that inside the church, oh no, we're much more compassionate than that. We, we don't think that people get what they deserve. We, you know, we understand the complexities of that. I'd encourage you to think again. Several years ago now, there's a group called the Barna Group. They do um, lots and lots of surveys amongst Christians to understand Christian culture and the impact of Christian culture in all sorts of spheres. And they asked a very large group of evangelical Christians. So evangelical just means Christians who properly believe, they believe the Bible. They believe the Bible is true. So evangelical Christians are generally familiar with what's in the Bible. The Barna group posed this question. They asked people, do you agree with the phrase, the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves? Okay, so do you believe the phrase that the Bible says God helps those who help themselves? 82% said they strongly agreed with that. 82%. Let me tell you, it doesn't say that in the Bible. It does not say anywhere God helps those who help themselves. It's a sort of mishmash of lots and lots of different ideas that on the surface of it sound quite good, but it is toxic. It's absolutely toxic. Why do we end up thinking like that sometimes? And I'm not suggesting that there's anyone at all here who might think that. I deliberately didn't ask you to raise your hand if you thought that was in the Bible. You know, that, that just wouldn't have been good, would it? But I think we as a culture tend to believe that because it's what our merit culture has led us into. 
that even if we know that the Bible doesn't say that God helps those who help themselves, somehow we sort of do believe it. And it leads us into this type of position that we, we, tie, we sort of fall into the trap of thinking, well, God rewards our goodness and he punishes our sins according to what we deserve. So we're seen to earn and deserve our fate. But as Sandel says again, the more acute the suffering, the greater the suspicion that the victim has brought this on himself. Oh, that's terrible, isn't it? That is terrible. But this isn't a new problem. Think about Job. So Job is a character in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. He has a whole book dedicated to him. And Job experienced unimaginable hardship and tragedy in his life. I mean, really terrible. But yet God describes him, or he is described at the beginning of the book as blameless in God's sight. But Job cannot get his head around why he's suffering. And it's one of the earliest biblical examples that we have of this type of merit thinking. Because Job says, I don't deserve to suffer. I've done everything right. I've been a good man. I've led my life well. But yet I'm really suffering. And in the second half of the book, God is so robust in how he, he cuts Job off at the knees and says, Job, you've got it all wrong. This isn't about you. This isn't about what you've done. You are caught up in something much, much bigger. This isn't about your behavior. You're not being punished for not doing life well enough. And the whole of history has actually struggled with this. So one of the earliest Christian theologians that we have, a chap called Augustine, I love him, he's Augustine of Hippo. I love that, anyway. <laughs> he's just, he's wonderful. Glenn thinks I have a bit of a crush on Augustine. <laughs> he's one of my top people that I really wanna meet when I see Jesus, you know, meet Jesus. And then where's Augustine? <laughs> have to have a chat with Augustine. Anyway. He was crystal clear, and he did loads of writing on this, that there are absolutely no rites and rituals. So there's no prayer, there's no fasting, there's no Bible reading, there's no nothing that can enable us to earn our salvation. Nothing we can do to earn it. We, we, we just can't. And 11 centuries later, another Christian theologian called Martin Luther, he had the same beef with the church. And he railed against the church because so many practices, church practices were designed to earn our way into heaven, to earn God's approval. And he had 95 complaints, which he called the his theses, which he nailed on a church door for discussion. And it paved the way for the Protestant church as we know it today. But even Luther didn't get it fully right because his uh, way of thinking led us somehow, it probably wasn't even his fault, but it just shows how strong our cultural bent is to move us in this direction. His thinking led us into what we know as the Protestant work ethic, which is if you work hard, you will rise. And so somehow we end up today with so often the church feels a bit like a self-help club 
behaviour management system or a self-help club, and it is neither of those things. So what are we to do? I think there are two things. We need to understand afresh the amazing, amazing, powerful, beautiful gift that God's grace is to us, for all of us, whether we've right royally screwed life up or not. It, it, is, it doesn't matter, because actually we have all, we none, none of us deserves it. So we have to understand afresh the power and the necessity of God's grace. But we also need to separate the connection between doing good works and earning God's favor and his approval. Now, let me say, it is right, of course it's right to do good works. Of course it's right to pray, to read our Bibles, to worship, to cultivate spiritual disciplines. But we don't do that to earn God's favor and his approval. We do it because it's the way of Jesus and it leads us into a life of freedom and fullness and flourishing. So we have to separate those two things and so often we pull them together. You'll be glad to hear we've got to the Bible bit now. <laughs> so I'm gonna rest my voice and I've invited Glenn to read um, for us a, a beautiful story that I think summarizes loads of these threads. Glenn. Uh, today's reading is Luke 15, 11 to 32, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. 
When he came near the house, he could hear music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he's come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Len, especially with the husky voice because of too much screaming for Coldplay last night. <laughs> there, are, there are many things that we could bring out of this story, draw out of it, but I just want to focus on one thing the grace dynamics that are at play, because I think there's a lot we can learn here. There are four things I want to pull out briefly before we close. Firstly, the father's love flows freely towards the younger son. There is no holding back. No holding back. You know, when we watch new parents with their newborn babies, we can see this type of love modeled, can't we? You know, there's no sense that the baby needs to do anything other than just be who he or she is. And the love that pours out of a parent's heart towards a newborn child is overwhelming and powerful and strong. And that is just a, a little insight that we have about how powerful God the Father's love is for us. It's overwhelming, it's instinctive, it's powerful, it's strong, it's unmerited. God is love, he is faithful. He keeps his promises to us, he is kind. And, and his kindness and his love isn't dependent on us making the grade. He is not slow to showing us his love and he's not slow to reaching out in his compassion. And then we have a beautiful, beautiful picture in this story of the father seeing the younger son coming probably full of trepidation and full of fear. What's my father gonna say? I have so screwed this up. I have right royally screwed up this time. I, I really, really have. He knows he doesn't deserve it. And his father runs. He runs towards him. He is just overjoyed overjoyed to see him. There is no hesitation in him cracking open the bubbly, you know, my interpretation, throwing a big party, cranking up the music. Come on, let's celebrate. There's no hesitation. He's not sitting there with a piece of paper with two columns, how, how he screwed up, how he's done well. Oh, he's not in credit. I mean, He's so overdrawn on the behavior stakes. 
We, we can't possibly throw a party until he becomes good again. No, of course not. He, he's delighted. He pours out his love towards his son. He's so delighted that he is home. And Hebrews 4, 16 has a beautiful verse in it. It tells us to draw towards the throne of grace. So where God is, the throne of grace with confidence. Each of us can draw towards God, his throne of grace with confidence. No ticking boxes, no behavior management system, no holding back because we somehow think we deserve our fate. No, draw towards God's throne of grace with confidence. We don't need to worry that we haven't made the grade. We've made the grade because Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus has made things right. We talk a lot when we come to faith about inviting Jesus into our life. But actually I think there's a an underused metaphor, which is probably slightly better one for a life of discipleship. And, it, and it's the words that describe what it means to be in Christ. We, when we are in Christ, it's like we piggyback off what Christ has done. We piggyback off his holiness, his purity. He's the one that made the grade. We didn't make the grade. But when we are in Christ, we no longer need to worry that we are good enough because Jesus is. He has done it. There's no hindrance at all to us being able to access God's grace. No ifs, no buts. The Father's grace flows freely. Second thing, the older brother's pride in his own achievements and in his own obedience and his service has blinded him to the plight of the younger brother. He has become so, he has got caught up in exactly the same trap that Job did. I've done well, I've done what I was told, I've been a good boy, I deserve, as a result, some sort of reward. And he is so, he's so entrenched in this way of thinking, I behave well, therefore I need a reward, that he's completely blinded to the fact that his younger brother is home. That his younger brother has, yes, he made some bad choices, yes, he did, but God's grace is enough, is enough. And somehow the older brother has just got stuck. He's misunderstood what justice is all about and how important restoration is to God. So when he rails against God, it's not fair. He's forgotten that restoring the weak, restoring the broken is a central part of God's manifesto pledge. It's not even just a manifesto pledge, it's, it's integral to what God's heart is to restore, to raise people up, to relate, raise people up into a relationship with him and to enable everyone to live in the blessing of his favor and his grace. The older brother somehow has got stuck in believing that if you succeed, you deserve to, and if you fail, you also deserve to. And it is completely counter to the good news of Jesus Christ. 
You know, whether we feel it or not, when it comes to grace, we're all the younger brother. We are all the younger brother. So the father's grace flows freely. The older brother's pride blinded him to the plight of the younger brother. The, thirdly, the younger brother knows that he has done absolutely nothing to deserve the father's grace. And although we might easily be able to identify with the older brother, I, I certainly can identify more easily with the older brother than the younger. Maybe for you it's different. But I think the core message in this passage is that God wants us to adopt the posture of the younger brother. Not in the sense that he wants to encourage us to, f- to be free to live a life of rebellion and debauchery and, and, and all the rest. But in the sense that we are all acutely aware that we cannot and we're not meant to do life on our own. We're not meant to rely on ourselves. We're not meant to rely on our own ability to succeed. We need to adopt a posture of deep humility upon God. There but for the grace of God go I. A merit culture says, I'm doing okay because I deserve to I deserve to do okay. A grace culture, which needs to be the culture of the church, says, I know I haven't done okay, but I know God embraces me anyway, and in Christ I can come and with confidence approach the throne of grace. And there's a beautiful few verses in Romans 3 that sums this up, and I absolutely love the way the message version puts it. Romans 3:23 and following we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us God did it for us out of sheer generosity he put us in right standing with himself that's what righteousness means it's a pure gift he got us out of the mess we're in and he restored us to where he always wanted to be and he did it by means of Jesus Christ God sets things right and he makes it possible for us to live in his righteousness, to live in Christ. And remember, if you are reading the um, prodigal son passage, this passage that we've just read in context, you might want to do that when you go home later on. If you read from the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is addressing a crowd of people and this crowd includes religious Pharisees, so Jewish leaders, and includes sinners and tax collectors. Now, the, the, relig- the Pharisees were known for their, they're a bit like the older brother. The, this is the whole list of things you have to do, all the boxes you need to tick to be acceptable, to fit in, to be acceptable to God, to be acceptable in the religious community. The tax collectors, on the other hand, were, uh, the most despised people out there in the Jewish culture. Because generally they were Jews and they were collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. Not just taxes like we know, punitive taxes. Taxes that drove people into poverty. So the Jewish tax collectors were were hated, they were despised, they were considered the lowest of the low. And in this passage, Jesus is saying, Actually, the tax collectors are better off than these religious leaders. Why? 
because they recognize they don't deserve God's grace. They don't deserve God's love. They know there's nothing they can do to deserve it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are peddling this mistaken view that you can earn your way into heaven. You can earn God's acceptance by the things that you do. Fourth, humility and compassion towards others can only come when we accept our reliance on God's grace. And here we return to the core of Tom's message last week, that it's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom. The kingdom way is to do what Jesus did, to extend compassion, grace, mercy to those around us. And we can't do that if we're like the older brother, quietly fuming inside, or maybe not, sometimes not so quietly. But fuming inside is not fair. They don't deserve it because they brought their failure on themselves. I, on the other hand, I deserve God's favor because I've done it all right. Now, if we, if we are thinking like that, even if we manage to hide that generally, but you know, you know, I know in my heart when I think like that, and I do, I, but I, I can recognize it and I have to be quite robust with myself, say no, because this isn't just a high, impossibly high bar for everybody else. It's an impossibly high bar for ourselves. And if we cannot rid ourselves of this unhelpful I succeed because I deserve it, and I fail because I deserve it. If we can't weed that out of our thinking, we're forever destined to be preoccupied with beating ourselves up because we're sure that we never, ever quite make the grade. So as we close and before we pray, um, maybe the musicians would like to come up now. But I want, let's ponder for a moment. I would really like to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you how much you are striving for approval from God, uh, from God, from others, from yourself, through your own achievements and success. This can be like a treadmill that we get on, and it's so hard sometimes to get off it. I encourage you, a better way, a life in all its fullness way is to get off that treadmill. I believe that God wants to release us from this striving to make the grade, from the focus on our own efforts and achievements. And I think he wants to free us into a deep, deep knowledge that God loves each and every one of us beyond what we could ever imagine, what we could even begin to imagine. And I think there are some people as well here today who have never quite got their heads around the difference between doing good for God's approval and doing good because it's the way of Jesus. And the, t- the outcomes might look the same, but the motivation is profoundly, profoundly different. So if there is some sort of sense that you have either grown up with or that you are feeling now, you know, it might be even a new thing to you, that you feel like you have to tick the boxes to fit in. You have to tick the boxes to be acceptable to God. You have to read your Bible, pray, worship, nail all the spiritual disciplines. You know, if you feel somehow that all those things, you have to do them in order to get God's approval rather than 
doing them because that's a way of flourishing. We read the Bible, we pray, we worship. All those spiritual disciplines are are designed to lead us into life in all its fullness. They're not the things that enable us to access God's grace. So, and there's a really heavy responsibility in the first way, a way of striving in the first way, and there's freedom and joy in the second way. In the second way. So if that's you, and, and you've never really got the hold of the difference and, and why we do good, then I think the Lord is here for you this morning to release you from that. And then finally, I think there may be some people here who know that they are extremely stuck in the mindset, uncomfortably stuck, in the mindset of God helps those who help themselves. And that mindset not only blocks you from being able to sustain compassion towards other, others, but it also blocks you from being able to be compassionate to yourself.